You can take your Bibles and open up to Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. If you haven't heard it said, it's not Revelations, plural, but it's Revelations, singular. I won't criticize too hard if you say Revelations, but it is Revelation. Um, Excited to continue this morning. Find my place here. All right, I love Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 8 through 11. But before I read those, um, just some opening comments. I think you all know that the world we live in is a very confused world. Um, It is a world that in a very quick period of time went from a very, you say the broad secular world of at least the U.S. and you could say Europe as well, um, where it was pretty common to make jokes about gender. You have kind of popular, you aren't Christian, just popular books like uh, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. And just everyone just said, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, And I think there at least seems to be some acknowledgement to those basic realities, but they want to hold the confusion of gender with that kind of common sense along the way. But I can tell you, the little bit of life I've lived, that common sense is true. I'm a man, my wife is a woman, and we are different. And it is usually expressed in everyday life of the differences. Now, for those of you who've been blessed with daughters, there's hope for you men. There's hope for you fathers. And so pray for Ashley. Because with four boys, I don't know if there's any hope. I mean, I've tried to adapt, I've tried to learn, but... I still don't understand women, and, and I don't even have any daughters. So maybe a daughter-in-law someday, uh, and I will get a little bit better. Um, but as, we, as I think about that, the sermon, the passage, the church that I'm going to preach on this morning, I feel a little bit like I'm going to be given a sermon on women. And you're going to look at me and go, you don't know anything about women. And that would be true. And I felt that way coming to this passage because the topic is the persecuted church. And I feel just as inadequate to talk about the persecuted church as a pastor in America, uh, a pastor in Nebraska, a pastor in Gretna living the great life. And I look here and I read about this church and I read a lot of history about Smyrna, uh, the city which has a long, bloody history of persecution towards the church and felt very inadequate Um, And I thought, what would I do if I was dropped into a place in the world where the church is persecuted? How could I even preach to them? And you go, that's the beauty of exposition because I'm not going to be able to maybe personally identify, just like I can't personally identify with every trouble that you are going through, but the word of God does. Um, And this would be the passage I thought, no better than if you had to preach. Even if you didn't know anything of personal persecution to any shape or degree, like we see here in these four verses, This is where I could go because the Lord speaks to the persecuted church and I know what he would say to them. And although I may not identify, I know the Lord, which most importantly he knows as is emphasized in this passage and he identifies with them. But as you do look out on the world, you see that we are exceptions. It doesn't feel that way. And even with different changing of times, it even feels a little bit like, well, we kind of feel persecuted, but we don't really, most of us face the consequence quite yet. You might have to change jobs, but you probably are able to get a new job. 
but a world where it's not just losing your job, which is going to cause the poverty seen in Smyrna, but even that is going to cost you your very own life. And so just looking at a few figures that are out there, Open Doors, if you go to opendoorsusa.com, um, out of, and you could, you know, quabble with numbers perhaps, but uh, 360 million Christians, and course, professing, um, etc., but living in countries that persecution was what they called significant. And by that, that they are not openly allowed to be Christians. They will, at great cost to their family, to their career, to their life, if they are found out to be Christians. So roughly, in the last year, 5,600, so 5,600 Christians were murdered. More than 6,000 were detained or imprisoned, and another 4,000 plus were kidnapped. In addition, more than 5,000 churches and other uh, religious facilities were destroyed. And so we talk about persecution, and, and I think we can all just recognize we don't completely uh, understand it in experience, but we can kind of put ourselves in their place. And I think there's still lessons we, of course, can learn. And there might even be that sense of preparation. And churches throughout the centuries have read this, maybe not facing persecution. That's why you should study all of Scripture, because... There may be some who live to see even greater persecution. And we're even talking about one church father um, who would have been young at this point, maybe even the messenger that is spoken of here. And he's going to live to see a day where that persecution increases, increases, increases until the day that he is martyred. And it might likewise be true that some here, even young ones, might go, oh, I remember that. I read that and I understand that there is cost. And there's always cost to discipleship. But even more so as the culture becomes more and more hostile. And so look at Revelation 2. Let's just read together. Short passage, verses 8 through 11, as it discusses this second church. Very close in distance to Ephesus. Different in the issue. Um, They're not going to be uh, reprimanded for anything. They're one of only two churches that the Lord's going to say, I don't have something against you. I don't think it's because they are perfect, but probably because of the severe persecution he focuses on. On these things that comfort them. So Revelation chapter 2 verse 8. He says. And to the angel of the church in Shmirna write. This is what the first and the last. Who was dead and was come to life says. I know your tribulation. And your poverty. But you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not. But are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will never be hurt by the second death. Father, as we come now, do grant us insight, illumination from your spirit as we identify with believers in church history and believers even in the world today that suffer persecution. We might see that comfort comes. And even in our own ways in which we do suffer, Lord, may we find comfort this morning in who Christ is and his words to this historical church in Smyrna. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. 
Well, we've been in this series of Revelation, and we've looked at one church out of seven. And give a little bit of more visual than normal this morning. We threw up this chart last week just to give you this idea of looking where they lay on the map that these letters are given, I think, to human messengers, and they're going to deliver these to the churches. And these are real churches and real cities that need to hear these things. And there's also a sense, just like many of the epistles, where there's application for the church, church universal, not only in location, but in time and space. And of course, we come to it with our own issues as the church in 2022. But this church is very much characterized by persecution. And Ephesus was persecuted as well, but Smyrna was persecuted uniquely, as we'll see here. But it's along the coast there, Ephesus, and it's another one of these cities that was, as we'll see, very, very beautiful and very, very wealthy. This is a rendering of what they kind of uh, think it looked like then. It's the only city of the seven that is still occupied. It's still an extremely, it's the third largest city in Turkey today. And this is what, and this looks beautiful, and that's what it was known for, a beautiful city. In fact, what I think of as I read historically about Smyrna is it very much feels like, although if you've ever been to Hollywood, it's actually terrible and dirty and ugly, um, but think like the beautiful parts of California, like Malibu and San Diego. Um, it's that kind of thing. And the culture is that kind of culture. It was a very arts culture, a very, very wealthy city. They were wealthy because they had a beautiful port that all the goods had to go through. And so just like Vallis Pumpkin Patch and just like Nebraska Crossing, you want to come to Gretna, you want to buy these things? Well, Gretna, right? We take our little, well, we don't, but the city takes their little cut and taxes you a little bit more. If you want to go eat dinner in Omaha, right? They grab a little extra money on the old food tax. And so that's what they did here. And it created a very wealthy, beautiful city sitting there on the coast. But it also led to them to being a very proud city that originally is a, of course, a Greek city. The Romans uh, take over and conquer the Greeks. And with that change, they change just like you might say California with the, as the wind blows. And they quickly adapted their religion. They quickly adapted from all the Greek gods to this kind of synchronistic worship where they said, oh, we have a new one. And they became aggressive towards emperor worship. And it's almost competitive. And it's very interesting as you read these things because you'll even see, this is one historical note. This is what they are known for, that this emperor temple worship, they were competitive and this is inscribed on a uh, base of a statue. And it says that Neochorus, or temple uh, steward, temple warden, temple servant of the cult, that's who this statue is of, of the emperor at Smyrna. End of kind of the second century is what they date it as. But they are so proud of that, that it was this term that would be an elite or someone who was uh, devoted to this cult of the emperor Worship. That word, it was also used of the title of cities that had been granted permission to construct a temple. Not every city got to do this. You had to prove your worth. You had to get permission from the emperor to build this temple to the emperor. And they would even fight over that title. And so one historical note is that Smyrna received the title, Neochorus, three times 
and Pergamum and if Ephesus took it twice. But they actually, in history books, write how they are proud that they took this seriously. In fact, they take it so seriously, and this will come to a point where we're here with persecution, is that you actually had to go and, in essence, burn incense, light a candle at this temple and get a certificate to prove that you worshipped the emperor. Well, that is going to be a problem for the Christian because they can't go light the candle. They can't worship the emperor and they're not going to have the certificate. And so when it comes time for them to run their business, it's a shipping port. What do they do? What happens when they say, where's your certificate? Well, it becomes an easy excuse to take their goods, which is going to, of course, contribute to their poverty. And they're going to be persecuted because they're not giving what they believe homage to the emperor. And so this is the context upon which this city is, uh, which the church is living in this city. And we're going to see that it moves, at least we know historically, on a progression from this is bad. Clearly, he says that be faithful until death, martyrdom is happening. But we know it even gets more severe as the days go on. And they continue to persecute the church. So this is application for the current church and the continuing churches in Samaria. And I think it's comforting, as we'll look here, it's comforting that Jesus is going to tell them, again, emphasizing his character, his knowledge like a father, saying, I know what you are going through. He's going to say that he is the first, the last, and he is the one who knows, and he is the future hope in him. And so we're going to look at each of those kind of broken out in the way that he comforts them in the midst of this persecution. Let's look at verse 8. He begins, I think really, by these titles, because if you are with him, they are comforting. If you are not with Christ, they are terrifying. And of course, this isn't in the context of him critiquing like some of the other churches where he's going to bear the sword if they don't repent. This is one where he simply is there to comfort. And so he says to the messenger of the church in Shmirda, to write this, that this is what the first and the last, so Christ, the first, the last, who was dead and has come to life, says. The one who's giving this to this church, many of them, have never seen unless they migrated as part of those 500 that saw the resurrected Christ. And they get a message from Christ himself and a reminder that he is not just anyone, but he is the first and the last, which is, as we saw before in Revelation, this tie-in with Isaiah and the tie-in that he is Yahweh himself. You see that in these verses earlier, chapter 1, verse 4, when John says, Grace to you and peace from the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. Verse 8, that I am the Alpha and the Omega, which is another way of saying first and last. First letter of the alphabet, the last letter of the alphabet, who is and who was and who is to come. And then in verses 17 and 18, as it describes Christ When John falls dead at his feet, he placed his right hand on me saying, do not fear, which is what he's going to tell the church at Smyrna. I am the first, the last, the living one. I was dead. Behold, I am alive forever and I have the keys of death and Hades. All this goes back to the reality that theology is comforting. It's a good thing. 
But what comfort would it be to worship a timeless God? They're actually in Smyrna going to be accused of being atheists, which is interesting. The Christians, there's, there's multiple things we'll see on the blasphemy side. They're going to accuse them of. One of them is being atheists. Why? Because they don't worship a God who is seen. You can't point to the temple. You can't point to the idol. You can't do anything. Even the Jews had the temple, right? To some degree. Oh, they go worship at the temple. The Christians have none of this. And so they would say, oh, you don't worship any gods. And they'd say, well, they are atheists. But no, they they worship the one, the true God who has no beginning and no end. I think comfort comes from that worshiping, understanding the nature of God and his timelessness. It is the reality that it puts in perspective as temporal beings that he knows things that we can't comprehend. This is the ultimate kind of he knows the long game. We experience things in time and understand and can trust him because he is by his very nature outside of time. Reminds me of the, the phrase, if those of you who like to read the books, Lord of the Rings, my boys with, with Gandalf the wizard, he's never early nor late. There's a reality of this. And if you're suffering and you're being persecuted, you're probably thinking the Lord has, maybe he came too early. Think of the church at uh, Thessalonica that they're thinking, well, maybe we missed the rapture. Or in this case, I, I can't handle, I can't suffer any longer. Perhaps he is late, but this is the comfort that, no, 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 he is the first, he is the last. He's never early, he's never late. He knows, as emphasized in verse nine, he's all powerful, he's all knowing. He sees what we cannot see. And pretty important if you're facing imminent death, he emphasizes that he was dead, but he did not stay dead. He has come to life. That's the kind of theology that you cling to. It's the kind of thing you want to hear. If you're on hospice care and you know the end of your earthly life, your uh, life on this earth is, is imminent, you're going to die, you want to put your trust in the one who died and came back to life. And so it, it's comforting, I think, even the way in the titles that Christ picks for them and he comforts them who he is. He's going to say that, verse 11, he who overcomes will never be hurt by the second death. And he puts into perspective that there is something worse than martyrdom. There's something worse than giving your life, which is suffering the second death, which is eternal death, which is hell. We'll see that when we get to verse 11. But that's who Christ is, and that should bring comfort to his churches, and especially to a persecuted church. But it also brings this comfort here that he knows things. He's not off somewhere else doing something. He's not too busy. It's not as if Jesus didn't notice the persecution in Smyrna. No, he knows it. He's personally intertwined with them. Verse 9, he declares what he knows. And what he knows is, verse 9, that I know your tribulation. I think this is the same tribulation that John says he is sharing in. That is, sufferings. It's not the great tribulation we're going to look at later in Revelation. But this is simply this term for sufferings. I know your tribulation, your sufferings. 
And then he describes, and I think this way you understand John, he did it before uh, with describing Ephesus, but he says something general like tribulation and then gets kind of specific. He declares what that is. And specifically, it's tribulation that has led to poverty and to blasphemy. I know your sufferings. He knows that they have become poor. And he encourages them. You might be poor. You might have lost your job. You might not know where your next meal is coming from, but you are rich. This is where it's interesting to look at Shmirna because there's such great irony as I was reading the history. This is such a wealthy city. This is just different than the other cities. And there's so much wealth, yet the Christians become those who can't work and therefore become poor. Yet the poorest are the riches when counted by God's economy. And he knows what they have suffered, what persecution, what sufferings. As I said before, they're not willing to light the candle, which means they're not going to get the certificate, which means they're not going to be able to work. I don't know, what would you do given that scenario? I imagine many, and church history is full of it, that they thought, well, it's not that big of a deal. Just go ahead. In fact, you're going to see even in church history, there are times where the, the government itself is going, just go ahead. Just do it. We have to follow the rules. Just light the candle, get the certificate, and go back to work. Why are you causing so much trouble? They were given, and this is alluded to here, 10 days. It's kind of like a fix-it ticket. If you were found without your certificate, there wasn't go to jail. There was, okay, you didn't do it yet. Go to the temple, light the candle, get your certificate. But the believers wouldn't do it. And so, what happens? Their property is seized, they lose their job. There are some that think the allusion in Hebrews 10 is probably to Shmirna. The sufferings that come, public spectacle. Their possessions being taken. It says in Hebrews 10, 32, But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and afflictions, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you also showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted with joy the seizure of your possessions, knowing that you have for yourselves a better and lasting possession. Therefore, do not throw away what that confidence of yours, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Persecution's not unique to Shmirna, but it is probably more severe there than anywhere else in the Roman Empire. And there is a warning that it is going to get worse for this church, and that is exactly what history will record. But they count it better to be poor and faithful than to be rich and unfaithful. Very similar in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11 with Moses, that Moses, in a similar way, could have been wealthy and rich and next in power to Pharaoh, but he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And I love this phrase, that he, he'd rather choose to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. This goes back to, who do we worship? God is not bound by time in the same way. And we need to remember those things and it should comfort and motivate us because it is. There are certain things that would, in the short term, 
both be pleasurable or convenient. And he's saying, no, I'd rather be mistreated and faithful than enjoy the pleasures of sin regarding the reproach of Christ. Greater, Moses did, and likewise we should, we should regard the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt or America or insert the treasure, for he was looking to the reward. And Jesus comforts them saying, I know what you have suffered. I know what you have given up. I know what it has cost you. They chose poverty over promotion. And you may not face that today, but the day may come sooner than later where that is the same choice you will make. And I would encourage you to be, hopefully this passage comes back and you go, there was a church just like that that had to make that choice. And there's going to be two commands, two imperatives. If that choice comes to you, Don't be fearful, verse 10. And the second imperative in these four verses is, and be faithful. Do not fear and be faithful. But before we get there, the second half of verse 9, not only are they impoverished, but the second thing he says is that they have been blasphemed. So they're suffering because of their poverty and they're suffering because there are lies being spread about them by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. We see that throughout the book of Acts that there is an issue going on between uh, the, Judy, uh, the Jews and uh, the Christians. And probably in this case, they were both being persecuted because Jews are not the same thing. Um, they're not supposed to bow down to the, um, this cult of the emperor, but they probably are ratting out the Christians in this case. And, G- and Jesus is very clear saying this is not from God. This is the synagogue of Satan. They're blaspheming. They're telling lies. Well, what lies are they saying? What lies are they telling? You can look and we don't know if they're all here in Smyrna, but throughout the early church history, there's many lies. One would be, which I mentioned, they're atheists, which is interesting because their culture had no issue, which our culture would, right, with believing in multiple deities. In fact, that was what they did and how their culture and society was built around all those deities. And the Christian come in and says, no, I only believe in one God and you can't see him and, and he's in your heart and he died for your sin and became a man. And they're going, that's just an excuse. You really don't believe in anything. And they accused them of being atheists because they could not see their God. Secondly, early church history, you see this accusation of the church, the Christians, the early Christians being cannibals. But you go, what? how is that possible? Well, they saw the early Christians partaking in the Lord's table. And they said, well, what are you doing there? And the Christians said, we're partaking of the Lord's body, the bread, the flesh, and of the wine, his blood. And they heard, so you're eating someone's flesh and you're drinking their blood. Blasphemy, according to them. But again, we understand symbolic and just what Christians do. Another one was this idea, this accusation of being incestuous. Um, in that, they refer to each other as brothers and sisters. For example, if you're a, a young man, um, they understand that you can only marry in the Lord. So who are you going to marry? You marry your sister in the Lord. And they accuse them of being incestuous and breaking up the, the norms of society, which of course isn't true, but that was the blasphemy. That was the accusation but maybe most severe, and what you've seen in Smyrna is they're rebellious. Why? They, they won't bow down to the emperor. They won't claim him as God, as a deity, and they won't worship the emperor. 
And so they slander, and it becomes pretty easy because the government wants to squelch any kind of insurrection. And so those here, particularly Jews, are spreading these lies, but we see them throughout the Roman Empire in the early church. And those lies come from one source. And it's why I think he can say this in a generality, that this is the synagogue of Satan. Why? Because anything that is opposed to Christ is ultimately rooted in Satan. Ultimately, his, what he's doing and his demons are doing or his system is doing, they are opposed to Christ. And so they understand this tribulation, this suffering, isn't in that sense. The Lord is in control of it, but don't be confused. It's not coming from Christ. Will he use it? Absolutely. But this is Satan's work, Satan attacking God's people. There's no promise here of relief. And it's, it's interesting because it's the only one of the seven where there's not this reminder that he's coming, but a emphasis on what they need to do. They need to remain, not be fearful, and be faithful. And it would seem to, to me that reference, be faithful unto death in verse 10, is that implication that the reason he's not talking necessarily and comforting them with, I'm going to return, is probably because he knows very shortly many of these are going to go to him because they're going to be martyred for their faith. And so Jesus comforts the persecuted church by declaring who he is and that he knows all of it and that there is a future hope in him. Verses 10 and 11 describe that future hope. As I said, there are two imperatives in this future hope, which is do not fear in hoping and be faithful until death. Look at verse 10. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. The sense of, we got this kind of language in Revelation of quick and near, and we've understood that, that this isn't always talking about, this is the, the next event um, that is going to happen. It's not necessarily always talking about something soon. But, it, but in this case, it would seem that this is, you're about to suffer these things. And it would probably be, in this case, with this church, you're going to suffer them soon. Do not fear. I say that because what's described is this test. And what is described is this 10-day period, which matches up with what they would be given to repent. And to go light the candle and worship the emperor. But don't fear, he says, what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you may be tested and you will have tribulation or sufferings for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. The promise is I will give you the crown of life. What are we called to be? Called to be fearless and faithful. If you were given 10 days, it's a long time to think about it. It's the way the government can perhaps look as if they're not horrible. They're being merciful, gracious. If you have 10 days and you sat there and you thought, maybe day one, I'm not. No way. I'm not giving in. I'm not going to bow down to the idol of the emperor. But day two goes by. 
Day three goes by. Day four goes by. Day five goes by. I imagine, if you're anything like me, I'm somewhat wired to go, maybe there's another way here. There is not going to be for them another way. They taught in that early church in Smyrna that it wasn't noble to to be martyred in the sense that uh, you shouldn't go seeking it. And so Christians are hiding. Um, The the early church actually did talk about that. This wasn't something that they were saying, oh, go get martyred. No, they, they, they were wise and they hid and they did those things. But they also taught that if you are about to be martyred, that you should go fearlessly. That you should suffer well for Christ. That you should understand it as a test. And that if proven faithful, you will receive the crown of life. James chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. It's talking about eternal life. And if you understand what awaits you is eternal life with your Savior, you have the motivation to go without fear and to be faithful even if it comes to death. I'm sure these Christians knew their Bibles. You can, at least for me, fill a parallel. You see all kinds of situations where the Lord delivers his people. You see that a lot even within Christian circles, right? If someone is sick and someone is dying, I mean, they're just as you start to cling to the passages where God heals, where God does miracles. But there is nothing here in verse 10 that says that's actually not going to happen. In fact, what he's saying is you're going to die and you need to be faithful until death. And so you look at stories like Daniel chapter 1. Ten days, Daniel says, he won't eat, won't profane himself. He won't eat the meat offered to idols. And he says, give me and my friends ten days. Give me vegetables, water, bread, and test me, right, in ten days. And, of course, after ten days in Daniel chapter 1, they go, wow, you are the healthiest and the strongest among them. And pretty much that's the way Daniel starts and accelerates. And by the end of chapter 1, Daniel and his friends are the wisest in the kingdom. And Daniel has a seat at the, right next to the king. I would like to be like Daniel, right? I would like not to suffer. I'd like to be faithful, tested, and then go, wow, you're really wise, and get promoted and maybe be the second in command of some kingdom. But that's not true for most. Overwhelmingly, that's not true for the church, for the Christian. That's not what's going to happen to them. They're not going to get a seat at the table. They're going to ultimately get a seat at the stadium, where they are going to be the ones on the menu, both for the lions. And when that doesn't kill enough Christians, they're going to move to burning them at the stake in Smyrna. This is a reminder that you will be rewarded for every injustice you face in the name of Christ. Peter talks about that, that suffering... Just for suffering's sake isn't worth anything, but you suffer for the sake of Christ. There is reward, and you can go confidently and be bold. And I don't know how else you could unless you believed this, you were convicted of these truths. 
that he really is the first and the last, that he really is the one who is dead, who has been raised. Again, if you believe that, you can do these things by God's power and his spirit to be fearless and faithful. The reminder which he gives all the churches, verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church, to the churches. Who overcomes, he who overcomes will never be hurt by the second death. Why only four verses? You think the persecuted should get more verses than anyone? They need to hear more. No. As I said, I kind of picture hospice care in in my mind. You need to hear more or you just need to hear a few things that are true. I think at that point, you just need to hear a few things that are true. He who overcomes will never be hurt by the second death. That is not the first death, but eternal death that Revelation is going to refer to multiple times. That yes, every single human apart from Christ returning is going to die. You can't run from that one. But in Christ, you will have life, the crown of life. And if outside of Christ, he's saying there is something worse, something worse than being poor, something worse than suffering, something worse than being slandered. And that is second death. That is what ultimately is being prepared. We'll kind of see some of that fleshed out in Revelation towards the end. There is a place being prepared and everyone is going to be resurrected. Not just believers, even unbelievers will be resurrected. But there is a place being prepared for Satan and his angels, the lake of fire. And that is where unbelievers will go as well. And that is the second death. Overcome, be fearless and be faithful. As I said, it's an interesting note with Shmirna. It's the only city that still remains. And so it's the only place in which there is still a church. So the most persecuted, the most impoverished of the churches, and there is still a church in um, that city in Turkey today. It's gone by a different name at this point, but it is Smyrna. But just 50 years after this, it's where persecution starts to increase, increase, and increase. They have a, a new governor who particularly wants to demonstrate to his superiors, I'm really serious about Rome. I'm really, really faithful to the Roman Empire. And I'm going to be the one, because they can't seem after all the persecutions to stamp out Christianity, who's going to stamp out Christianity in this city. And so they ratchet up the persecutions 50 years after this letter. Um, And it could be that the messenger, would at least line up in time-wise, is the one in church history known as Polycarp. And Polycarp knew the apostle John. He was the one who later discipled uh, many. And he would have been, if he's 86, as he says, or a little bit older, because that's how long he says he knew the Lord when he dies. He could have been in his teens, could have been in his 20s, could have been even this messenger. But he survives at least for 50 years. And he pastors in Smyrna, and that governor begins to target things they haven't done before. They start to target the youth because he thinks I can get the youth to talk. And so there's stories of them persecuting the youth, feeding them to lions. And eventually one of them breaks and says, I'll tell you where Polycarp is hidden. He was hidden in a farmhouse. And so the soldiers, they go and they find Polycarp. 
There's lots of little interesting pieces there, and if you want to read his story, I would, I would encourage you. Because they arrive to arrest him, and he asks them, can I feed you? And so he actually feeds the ones that are going to take him to be martyred. And then he says, can I pray? And then he proceeds to pray. And by the end of that, it's said of the soldiers that they don't even know why they're arresting this old man. And what is, why are we even doing this? But as he's brought before, and they, they have at this point, um, probably the picture in our mind is the Colosseum, but it's not that big, but it's a similar kind of sporting event that seats over 10,000 people. And he is brought before the governor and asked to deny Christ. And this is his famous Response, 44 score and six years, so translation, 86 years. 86 years have I served him, and he has never done me injury. How can I now blaspheme my king and savior? Come on, Polycarp. Let's just say, again, 86 years. When did he become a believer is the question, but he's perhaps in his 90s, and he's saying, I'm old and I'm gray. And they're going, dude, we don't need to kill you. Just go light the candle. And he says, how can I do that? Christ has been faithful to me. How can I go and dishonor him? And so Polycarp, the the lions have been fed. So that's kind of how it worked. Lions don't eat all day. And when they're done, you've got more Christians to kill. You have to burn them. And so Polycarp is put to a stake. And then they go to nail him to the stake. It said that he says, you don't need to nail me. Like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm old. I'm feeble. And so they just tie his hands. And Polycarp is burned and martyred for the faith. He was persecuted, yet he is faithful. He would be what the world would say was poor, yet eternally rich. Polycarp was faithful. Polycarp, in that way, given time to repent, goes fearless to the stake. And although you and I, we may not be able to empathize completely with the persecuted church, given our own lives, we we face our own challenges. And it's a good reminder that kind of the argument from the, the greater to the lesser, that if he can do that in the midst of martyrdom, the midst of death, I think I can suffer a little bit, and I'm not discounting that you won't suffer for Christ in America. You will to some degree, but it's a good comforting reminder that these things are true for us. And it's a good reminder that if they have suffered so much and over those years suffered, and that church still exists today, that the least we can do is when the time comes, whatever that looks like, suffer both fearlessly and faithfully for Christ. Let's pray. Father, it is a reminder for us that we are not promised to live life in a straight line where there are no bumps, no valleys, no hills, but that if we profess the name of Christ, that we should in some way, and we will in some way, share in these sufferings, that we will not ultimately be able to deserve any better than Christ himself. And if he suffered, then we will gladly suffer if it is for his namesake. May you use that as we are refined, as we are tested, 
that we might be shown to be genuine, that it might mature us, that we might strengthen us for the challenges and the own, our own sufferings, which you know, for you know all things that have been laid before us, that we would be fearless as we face them and faithful, even if it comes faithful until death. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.